you have no purpose, what's your purpose? Like, you know, what's your point? And I think this is the question that I think just very few can really ask about their business. And, I, I, you know, I've wondered for a long time, how do you make more leaders like Paul and the few CEOs who kind of get it? And the challenge is it's very personal. You know, it's what makes someone kind of care more about the broader spectrum or see deep connections and think in systems. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Andrew Winston. He's talking to us from Greenwich, Connecticut. He's one of the most widely read writers in the world on sustainable business. He's got regular columns in HBR and MIT Sloan Business Management Review. He's written four best-selling books on sustainability and his latest, Net Positive is a Cracker, co-wrote that with Paul Polman of Unilever. Financial Times had it as its best business book of the year. Thinkers 50 put him in the top 50 management thinkers in the world. He's been on every news channel and covered in every newspaper than you can think of. So we have a fantastic conversation today. We talk about his early life, how he ended up with a career in sustainability, having done economics and then working for Boston Consulting Group. Talk about some of the essence of one of his earlier books, Green to Gold, and how he came up with a two-by-two matrix working with Michael Porter to look at how to position that for organizations. We have a fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Andrew Winston. I'm an advisor and writer and speaker. My job in the world is to help multinationals mainly and, and the executives understand the megatrends, what's really changing the world around us and the expectations of companies. It's about the role of business and society and how companies can help create a thriving world. So I work with companies in a lot of different ways. I speak around the world and I write a lot of books about this and it's kind of been my passion for 20 years. And when you were at high school or university, and you were getting careers advice. I guess this wasn't on the list of things that people thought you might end up doing. I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I'm old enough to date myself that, you know, high school is like the 80s. I, there were people working in sustainability. I have some mentors and friends who have been in it, you know, since the 70s, but it wasn't like it was a common thing in business. So no, I, I you know, this wasn't on my radar at all. I, you know, I went to school and got an economics degree and came out and went to Boston Consulting Group and did the normal path of strategy marketing stuff and came to this, you know, right 2000 era kind of as a value shift, kind of a right turn in my life that came out of the dot-com crash. Actually, I'd been at a startup and we went under and I was all of a sudden floating and realized I wanted to do something different with kind of more meaning. But yeah, it wasn't even on my radar in business school a couple of years before that. I hadn't heard the word sustainability or really carbon or, you know, 
I'd heard of climate change, but wasn't like a huge topic. So looking back, I guess I was pretty early in, into this business sustainability world. I don't think I realized how long it was going to take for us to get the momentum we have now. But, you know, here we are. Who did you persuade to part with cash for your help at the beginning? I want to save the planet. Pay me some money to do a thing. Like, what was the thing and who were they? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a couple while I was kind of floating and decided to go back to school. I did a couple little projects and I can't even remember how I got them. It was kind of information interviews. And I, you know, my resume was I had been a consultant and I was a strategy guy. And one or two people said, hey, why don't you you know do some research or help us while you're looking but really, you know, I went back to school, got a degree in environmental management and started working with a professor there. And we wrote this book together, Green to Gold. So no one was really paying me to do this until I'd spent a few years researching and writing this book. And, you know, because people ask me, especially students, grad school, they say, how do I kind of get the career you have? Or how do I do that? And I said, well, first you write a bestseller. And I'm not being a smartass. I, I literally don't know how else I would have done it because the book came out at the right time. We sold a lot of copies. Companies used it as a platform for, okay, thinking about this new thing, green business. And this was 17 years ago. And then people started calling and saying, hey, can you come speak? And I was like, yeah, I want to promote the book. And then they started, then bureaus called and offered me money to speak, which I didn't know was a thing. Like I had never thought about that as a business. And then, you know, I had a consulting background. So then it was easy to say, hey, I got this book out. And I've been, I guess, lucky. I mean, there's been a lot of hard work behind it, but most of my business has kind of been inbound. It's really hard to go out and say, hey, hire me to speak. I know people try to do it. It's difficult, but it's more that people know me, see my book, see me write something, see me on TV, whatever it is, and then say, hey, we should, or see me speak, and then say, we should get this guy. I've been lucky to make that work for 17 years. I, every year I say to my wife, there's no way this model can continue. I'm going to have to go get a job. My mom has asked me repeatedly, when are you going to get like a job? Which is hilarious. Because I haven't had a steady paycheck and, you know, and benefits for 20 years, but I've done fine. You know, it's been an interesting, interesting life. I didn't really picture this kind of solo floating thing, but it really fits me. When I worked in big companies in the 90s, I kind of hated it. You know, I just the, the structure, the I don't know, the focus of the top guys was just all about money. And I didn't have the language for what was bothering me. Now I know it was like, it's not about sustainability. It's not about like, improving people's lives. It's just money, money, money. <laughs> and so I suspect the Boston Consulting Group background must have been must be really helpful. That ability to talk to senior executives in a way that, you know, take an argument, pr present it in a way that really is material for them. Yeah, BCG was great training. I mean, it it really, you know, shaped kind of the way you think you, every, everything's a two by two matrix. You know, my in the first book, that was the core framework was a two by two. You know, it does frame the kind of questions you ask and the way you think about strategy. And yeah, you know, so I think it was great training. You know, I didn't think I'd end up a consultant again. I kind of left that and went into business for a while. But, you know, here I am kind of an advisor consultant. I think I'm more advisory than consulting, which means, you know, I don't produce like PowerPoint decks, really. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, it's all the ideas, none of the homework. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I get to, I sit on, you know, advisory boards and and I do a lot of speaking. So you kind of drop in and give, try to drop some knowledge bombs and, you know, and it is comfort with, with speaking partly comes from consulting. I actually had a background singing and performing. And the, the reason that matters, it's actually one of the reasons I got the job at BCG, the guy who hired the associates right out of college loved to hire like college singers because he knew they could perform and because they had to put you a 23 year old in front of CEOs. So they wanted someone who was comfortable. 
like on stage. So it was like, it actually got me the job at BCG, which was fascinating. And I think they were right. Well, now there's a golden thread all the way through. Yeah, it's weird. Serendipitous maybe, but each one makes sense when you look back. I always tell when students, especially like, how do I find a path? I'm like, just go start doing something. You don't know what you're going to want to do. And I, I really believe that even when you take a right turn, you never leave all the stuff you've learned, right? I think part of what made my first book, I think, successful was that I wrote it like a consultant. I wrote it like a good to great. I didn't write it like an environmentalist. You know, I just, it was, it was my background, right? It was marketing and branding and strategy and just kind of the way of communication. So I, I, I think you never leave anything you've done, even if it feels like you've gone a completely new way. So what was the two by two matrix at the heart of green to gold then? Well, actually, I mean, it's, it's so basic and I've seen it pop up, you know, and reports and consultants have just taken it with, you know, without <laughs> reference, which happens all the time. It was very simple. We actually sat down with Michael Porter at Harvard about kind of his framework of creating business value. And his is basically two, like differentiation, pricing, like there's a few, you know, a couple of big buckets. And we said, we made a two by two that was basically that, but extended it over time. And we said in the short run, you know, you're, you're creating value by, you know, reducing cost or driving revenue, innovating, you know, selling more stuff. But in the longer run, you're also reducing risk and you're driving brand value. So it's a, it's a two by two of kind of reducing the downsides, increasing the upsides, and then short and long term. And I find it still really useful whenever you see people write the business case or something for sustainability. It's usually basically those buckets. You know, the intangible one is the really big one. And that, you know, that includes employee attraction and retention, customer loyalty, brand value. And it's actually the vast majority of, of most company value now is, is intangible. It, it's like the market cap of the biggest companies, you know, it reflects like five, six times more than their book value, their assets. It's so much of the world is now your brand, you know, and, and, you know, what you bring to the world, what you promise the world. So I, I think that stuff has always gotten short shrift in business because we don't know how to measure it, but it's the majority of the value now. And that's often that's where sustainability does sit. You're building kind of long-term connections and resilience and all these other things that aren't as easy to measure. And I mean, we were chatting before we were recording about, you know, people ask you about the business case for sustainability. Yeah. We were laughing that really, if you don't believe in sustainability, the business case probably isn't going to make you change your mind. Are you, and you know, there you go back and say, look, sustainability wasn't a thing 20 years ago. There is a, there is an age, CEOs of large multinationals are of an age, you know, they're not sort of 21, 22 by and large. And so there's a point at which I guess most of the sustainability is a thing. What, what proportion of the CEOs of large multinationals do you think believe in sustainability for its own sake and not because of an intangible value? You mean for its own sake, like it's just right to the right thing to do or as a business value? Yeah, like slavery's not right. So we don't do that anymore. Or It's a good question. I think about this a lot. And, and we're at an interesting time in, in this realm. In the last few years, there's been just dramatic change in what's expected of business. You know, the role in society, they have to chime in now on you know, climate and inequality and LGBTQ rights and guns and democracy. Like there's just, they're drawn into so many things in society now. So I think, and everyone, every multinational is at the table on sustainability in general or ESG as some call it now and, or climate change. Like nobody's really debating that. And so that was a victory. Like we won, we got the first, the first task done, which is everyone's there. But when you say like, what percentage kind of really get it or 
kind of deeply believe it, I think it's still really small. I think for the most part, you know, as you said, they're of an age, that's part of it, but we're about 50 years into this kind of neoliberal experiment of the only point of a business is profit. So that means everybody in business basically was raised in this, even the 65-year-old CEO. And it's so dominant that they just believe anything else that isn't focused only on profits is somehow a drag on profits and and sustainability especially. So the percentage of that, I think it's probably the right thing to do, I think is high. But we've all been taught that the right thing to do is somehow never profitable or is anti-business, which when you step back for a second, is really screwed up. Like, so then we're saying that a business only profits by not doing the right thing. And that's, that doesn't seem very functional and it's quite literally not sustainable, right? We can't continue like that indefinitely. So I think the percentage you get it, that we have to, the speed and scale we need on our problems is tiny. When I said I didn't think it would take this long, I probably thought 20 years ago, I should have worked myself out of a job by now and sustainability officers shouldn't be needed in companies, but we're still a long way from getting there. We're making progress. Things are moving, but you know, it's a big ship. And so you wrote, you wrote Net Positive with Paul Pullman yeah. at Unilever. How does an organization like Unilever get to have a CEO who believes that fundamentally this is, I mean, not only that it's yeah. sustainable, but you know, having read through the book, it's like, not that we're just going to not, yeah, actually we have to make a positive difference, not just not yeah. negative impact, which is like, it's the other side of the line. It's not just yeah. up to the line, it's beyond that. Right. Well, I, you know, I don't know how you end up, I mean, Paul's a kind of unique guy. You know, I worked with him closely for a couple of years and I know him well now. And, you know, people have asked me, is he for real? Is it all, you know, BS? I'm like, no, it's genuine. It's for real. But what makes him so, you know, I guess odd is he, he came through normal business and he was a CFO of Nestle for years. He grew up at P&G. Then he, then he was hired from the outside from Unilever. Like he believes in money and profit and growth. Like that's his job. He ran a public company, but he kind of had this deep understanding that, I mean, he says he, the way he puts it on, like people talk about purpose in business. He goes, if you have no purpose, what's your purpose? Like, you know, what's your point? And I think this is the question that I think just very few can really ask about their business. And I, I you know, I've wondered for a long time, how do you make more leaders like Paul and the few CEOs who kind of get it? And the challenge is it's very personal. You know, it's what makes someone kind of care more about the broader spectrum or see deep connections and think in systems. It's hard to make that happen. It's hard to replicate it. I, I did some research with and interviewed like 20 CEOs that got it or said they did and kind of asked them why, why they cared. And back to your previous point, the business case wasn't even close to the number one issue. What's interesting was it needed to be there. Like it's kind of, you know, the behavioral psychology thing, like, you know, we make dis we make decisions almost from gut and then we look for the data to back it up. And so that's what I basically heard. They like the business case needed to be there so they could kind of justify it. But the reason they cared was everything from I went to the rainforest and I really thought about the world or the most common was my kids talk to me. I hear that all the time. So it's, it's actually very personal you know, how someone makes this change. And then they say, okay, let's do the business, right? So I don't know how you, the problem with that research was how do you replicate that? How do you replicate someone having a conversation with their kids or one guy, the CEO of 3M at the time, his name was Inga. And he said, I said, why do you care about sustainability? He goes, I'm Swedish. It was a great answer, but it was depressing because I was like, I can't replicate that. I can't go and make a seat, make other leaders Swedish, you know? So yeah, but he was right, right? Some of it's cultural. This is a big challenge. How do you change leaders? especially since 
part of the way things change normally is just generational change. You just get new leaders. But with things like climate change, we don't have time for that. We can't wait for Gen Z to be the CEOs of the world. That's like way too late. So we have to do something that's much harder, change people within their roles, not wait for the next generation. Well, and then in the US, you've got this politicization and pushback and, you know, it going down party lines. That must be bad for the world. It's not good. I get asked about it everywhere now, especially abroad, because, and it's funny because there's places that really feel like this ESG thing is kind of put upon them by the US and Europe in particular. So like Asian companies will say, I see the US is debating this. Does, that, does this mean we don't have to do this anymore? Like they just, they kind of want out from having to worry about these things. It's additional work. It's additional thinking, you know? I, I don't know if it's really slowing things down in the US. There's some really public, you know, examples of companies at least publicly pulling back from a commitment to LGBTQ rights or diversity because they're getting yelled at by conservatives. But like Target just did that. I don't know if you saw this. They pulled some merchandise from their shelves for Pride Week because there were angry people threatening their employees because there was gay merchandise. And they pulled it off the shelves, which I I posted on LinkedIn. It's ridiculous because someone threatening your employees is not a reason to back down. That's criminal. You, You prosecute them, right? Like you, you don't just change your merchandise because someone's angry. So I I think companies are in the crosshairs. They don't always know how to do it, but I will tell you that for the most part, companies that stand up and say, no, we're going to believe what we believe, you know, make that effort. They actually do better economically. Almost every case I've ever seen, they, they're so worried about losing business because people are angry, but they kind of miss that they're going to lose business if they give in. Like, what has Target just said to their LGBTQ employees and customers? They've said, we won't really back you up, <laughs> right? It's not good business. It just isn't. So the politicization in the US is ugly. It's part of a culture war. I, I also, I think that particularly, there's a religious dimension that I think you have in the US that you don't have in Europe. Yeah, and it's true, but it's... That sort of Christian right lobby that is just not a thing in Sweden. Well, yeah, I mean, that's because we there's the evangelicals. That's the real group that has seemingly to me a total disconnect from supposed Christian values and the people they vote for and the things they want to do. And because it's all about, you know, you know, abortion and, and, and gay people. And it's just like, that's it. And that's the judges they want. And, and it's a particularly powerful group, but the vast majority of, of Americans, like in most countries, they want women's reproductive freedom. They want gun control. They want, you know, they, they want gay marriage to be legal. Like our percentages are pretty good. Our problem is a political system that's completely broken and, you know, heavily weighted to rural, more conservative states. We have like the only democracy in the world where you, you can lose the popular vote and win the presidential election. It's, and, and it works at state level everywhere. It's totally screwed up. So we don't actually get representation of our, the average beliefs in the country. You know, it's it's because there's political takeover. There's, you know, people who are owned by vested interests. It's it's not we have like legalized corruption, basically, in the U.S. It's not it's not under the table. It's legal. Right. It was made legal by the Supreme Court for companies, people to give as much money as they want. I mean, what's the difference between that and handing you a envelope of cash to say vote for vote for this bill? It's just it's just legal. Right. It's public. Yeah. I don't know. We're we're a strange country. I will say that. (laughs) And so, in fact, without large corporate entities fighting for sustainability you are then you've got you've got a large lobby against sustainability and so it's great to have some some companies taking the lead 
to show that it can be done and is not not you know because at the beginning of the book you talk about the attempted takeover unilever takeover that they then fought off lots of people rallied around and helped them fight off their was it craft and then it was like what happened to the relative share price over time after that yeah it was the pe firm that owns craft but it was craft yeah Maybe you could just give a quick, if people don't know that, the background to that, or that, what, how that played out. Yeah. So, you know, my co-author, Paul, had been CEO for about, I don't know, seven, eight years at that point. It was 2017. And basically the head of Kraft, you know, came into the office and he, he thought they were going to talk about maybe buying a brand or something. And they came in and said, we're bidding for the whole company. It was a hostile takeover attempt. And this 3P, the, the, the PE firm, had basically never lost a bid. And they were they were working with Warren Buffett on this. Like they had it all lined up. And just something unusual happened. And, and you know, you, you need kind of public support, government support. You kind of need a buy-in to do a merge. It was going to be the biggest merger, I think, in, in history. And all of a sudden, there was just this pushback from a bunch of unusual places, all these stakeholders of Unilever that really wanted it to continue its stakeholder model and, and looking at its role in the world because Kraft was just a cost-cutting machine. Like the, that PE firm was known, the, the head of it was called like a cost-cutting machine. And so it was going to be a completely different approach to business and one that Unilever really didn't believe in. It was just a cultural misfit. But, you know, you had people from Greenpeace speak out and say, we want Unilever to stay at unions. And a bunch, and some of the investors were like, yeah, we might make money initially on the purchase, but we think Unilever will create more value on its own. So it kind of like, it kind of went bust fairly quickly, but it, it was, you know, the story we tell, it was partly because Unilever had built this base of trust and stakeholder relationships and just belief in the company that gave it unusual support. And there's a bunch of stories like that about Unilever that happens to very few companies around the world. Like they have a a role in India that foreign companies none, none other have. Like they give them so much leeway because they've been a partner to the country for a century. Just all sorts of examples like that, where as I talk to Unilever around the world, it's just an unusual company. It has its ups and downs. It has lots of things that are not sustainable. No one, no one said it's perfect, but it's tried a lot, right? It's thrown a lot at the wall to see what sticks and there's a lot of good stuff. Well, it's got a long history yeah. of social enterprise. And tell me the story then, tell, tell the listeners the story of, you know, what's, why should we pick up and read Net Positive? What's the, what's the message in the book? Well, I think it's really well written, first of all. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I, I kid, but like I've worked I wasn't a writer. I was a quant guy, but I've worked pretty hard at making things readable. I, you know, when I wrote my first business book, I did this and I just did a simple analysis of popular business books, like putting a bunch into Word and seeing what the grade level was. It was like ninth grade. And I was like, writing has to be easy and understandable, even if the concepts are hard. So I, I think I, hopefully it's, it's written in an easy to read way. That's, and I think that's huge right now. But the larger story is that, you know, the world is facing enormous challenges climate change and inequality, you know, are kind of the two overarching ones. And, and now attacks on democracy, the misinformation problem is just unbelievable. And we need business to step up and, and not just say lead, but be part of the solution with government, with civil society. And, you know, and Paul and I, you know, came to the conclusion that it just, it just isn't enough now for companies to kind of get incrementally better and say, well, I'll cut my energy use 10%. They need to be thinking much bigger and thinking in systems because these issues are really connected and companies aren't going to be able to hit many goals alone anyways. 
you know, if you're trying to do zero waste in your factory, you're going to probably have to talk to your suppliers about what they're sending you and, and, and think about redesigning, you know, things for your customers or, you know, there's, there's so many connections. So, you know, the argument in the book is that the world's moving really, really quickly and the demands on companies to do better have risen and they can. And we've laid out what we think is a pretty good path and plan for how you build a company that serves the world, that profits by solving the world's problems and not causing them. And the core question throughout the book is, you know, is the world better off because your business is in it? And I find that people kind of pause on that because it's hard and it's hard to answer, but also why haven't we asked that before? If the world's not better off, what are we doing? And I find it personally, like there's a lot in there about kind of humanity and business and and kind of the personal connection and do you care as a leader, as a person? And I find myself asking all the time, you know, is the world better off because I'm in it? Because, you know, like that's the typical kind of middle age, like what am I doing here? You know, you know, I, I, I hit 50 at the beginning of the pandemic and it was like a shock. I was like, I knew it was coming, but like, I just found it shocking. I was like, you know, what, how am I in my fifties? I definitely kind of do a lot of that questioning around, you know, what's, what's the purpose, you know? And so what, what, how would you describe what's Unilever's purpose? Yeah, well, they, I mean, they laid it out. They, it's interesting. I mean, they had a good, strong background for Paul and, and leaders to build on because they had started in the late 1800s with soap and cleanliness and health. Port sunlight. Right, port sunlight. And so what's interesting is Paul, in the weeks before he took over Unilever, he went there and looked at the archives and read about the history. And that's part of how he came to say, you know, they're doing a lot of things and they doing some sustainability work, but this is really the core. You know, the original purpose was something about making healthy living commonplace and, you know, easing the burden on women because they did all the work, which hasn't changed, I suppose, that, that much. But so he broadened it and just said, the purpose of this company is to make sustainable living commonplace and put out this sustainable living plan that really is the strategy. And they've kept with that, that mission. You know, again, they make a bunch of products that maybe aren't necessary. No one needs body spray, really, probably. But there's like, they make food, they make, you know, basic cleaning products. Like there's a lot that's about our, our basic health. And they have worked pretty hard to make the products healthier, to source everything as sustainably as possible, to decarbonize. They're, I mean, they're in like every major partnership that's trying to work on these big issues. And again, nobody's net positive. Nobody's at that place. But there's a handful of companies that have like pieces of the story and like, you know, Ikea is another great example. They now make more energy than they from renewables than they need. And so now they're moving into selling solar to customers so they can just have this multiplier effect of being a, a net positive on carbon business. Their existence is, you know, reducing carbon. That's the level of thinking that, you know, the leaders are putting in. And I think it opens up enormous, you know, innovation and growth, you know, possibilities. I think companies are finding it a, a great driver of success. You know, the problems in the world are big and big problems need solutions and solutions get paid for. That's business. And is B Corp a good system to help people understand a set of rules to play by? Yeah. I mean, I, I think generally speaking, you know, the, it's the right categories of questions. It's a lot of questions. It's hard for a really small company, I think, to to apply. But I think for small, medium, it's a great process because it it's a set of questions about your environmental and social impacts on the world that kind of make you go through and say, do we know? Do we have the data? And, you know, at a certain level of performance, you can get the, the B Corp, you know, branding. You know, in addition, related to B Corp is benefit corporations, which is a legal designation that's in some of the states in the U.S. 
France has this, I won't try to say it in French, but enterprise mission, it's mission, something that is basically saying, we are saying as a public or private company that we commit to creating stakeholder value, not just shareholder value. I mean, that's what a, that's what a benefit corp and a B corp are really doing is saying, you know, it's a broader, it's a broader mission. So I think that it's a good, it's a good thing for listeners that are in the small, medium world to check out B Corp, even if you don't go through the full certification to look at the questions and see what, what they're asking. And the B Corp got a bit of stick because Nespresso, the Nestle subsidiary, got the certification last 2022. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I mean, like I, you know, there's a lot, nothing in business is black and white. We, we try to make it, nothing in the world is black and white. And there's so much attempt to make it that way. It's, it's easy to kind of write off certain products or certain approaches and say, okay, this is inherently unsustainable. And some of that's true. You know, I think these kinds of rating systems like B Corp, they're looking at a number of dimensions, right? And none of those say you're perfect. And if you're doing a lot right on some dimensions like social, that gets you more points. And it's not a perfection meter, right? It's it's an indication of, again, that you're committed to something broader and that you're making progress on both environmental and social issues. So I, look, I, I think there's always going to be hurdles about companies that are in products that maybe are inherently unsustainable. It's, it's hard for me to see what a fossil fuel B Corp would be. It's just, it's not because they're evil. It's just, we can't keep burning fossil fuels and, and survive. So it's just a it's fundamentally incompatible with a thriving future. And, and so there's businesses like that. I think it's hard to justify as, as sustainable, you know, even though in rankings, they'll often pop up somehow. And how do we, how do we help? You said earlier, you know, the Asian countries that you visit or companies in Asia where you visit and they they see it as n- not their problem. I think you said, you know, and certainly that if you look at fossil fuel burning, China burning a lot of fossil fuels. How do we create an economy or a set of levers that make that change possible? Well, I mean, just to clarify, when I said Asian companies were like, oh, this is a burden. It's not that they don't believe in doing ESG. They just don't, they want to do it their own way. They don't want the the EU setting the standards. There's plenty of companies who, and especially in Asia, that have very long-term view that have really aggressive goals. Um, often their leaders in efficiency, especially like Japan, they've had to be, you know, as a, as a country, the China thing's really interesting. I mean, yeah, they burn fossil fuels. So do, so do all of us. There's a lot of big myths that, that somehow, you know, the West is doing all the sustainability stuff and China isn't, and they're dragging us down when really China's doing more than anyone. They've spent more money than anyone. They built the entire solar and wind industry. They produced most of it while the rest of us watched. And that's part of what brought the cost down so dramatically. I mean, I just saw a statistic in Bloomberg in the first four months of the year, China built three times as much solar as it did the first four months last year. And it's on track to build more solar this year than the U.S. has in total. <laughs> so whenever I hear China's not, you know. Part of a managed narrative against China that mainly comes out of the U.S. It is a managed narrative. It, it appears on Fox and, the, you know, the Murdoch properties. There's just this story that I get the question, honestly, like almost every talk, like, why should we do this if China's not? And like every word in that question is like not true. <laughs> it's like they are doing it. And the why we should do it is because it's better for our business. It's more profitable. It's healthier. Like, I think China's thrilled if we're like, why should we do something? And we're dragging our feet. They're just building the industries, you know, and people point out they're building coal plants. It's true, but they're also shutting some down. And the, the net net in the world is that all of the new electric grid capacity that goes on now is basically renewables. There might be a coal plant built somewhere, but there's another one shut down. 
it's all solar wind now. So, uh, you know, I think people ha haven't really paid attention to how much China has actually done. And there's always this, you know, burden on them about, oh, they're the biggest emitter, which is not really true for two reasons. One, the West outsourced our production and emissions to them over the course of 20 years. So that's still our emissions. It's our stuff. And two, like per capita, like it's the weirdest thing to talk about countries and go, they're the biggest emitter when they have four times as many people as the US. It's like, <laughs> I think the US, isn't it? 5% of the global population, 25% of emissions. Oh yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're five and 25 of everything, 25% of resources, everything. I mean, look, it's, it's US, China and EU are the three big emitters now. And, you know, US and EU are basically the, the, the historic emitters, the 75% of the carbon in the atmosphere came from the OECD countries, right? So when people say, why should we do this? I'm like, because it's our mess. You know, like, it's like a few of us had a party, drank all the beer, threw the cans around, and then asked everybody else to pick up the cans. You know, like, we did it. It's our mess. And, and it's going to be better anyways to go quickly. So let's do it, right? Let's, let's lead. And I think, again, I think a lot more companies are getting that and there's real investment. The Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is huge investment in, in the clean economy. It pushes things. It forces Europe. You know, it's funny. Europe was complaining the U.S. wasn't doing anything. The U.S. does this and says we're going to make some of our own renewables. And, and, and they're like, no, competitive. And, you know, it's like, you know, this is what you wanted. You wanted the U.S. to, like, get moving. So, like, compete. Let's do it better. Do more. You know, it's, it's I think it's great. And I think certainly in Europe, the war in Ukraine, Russian gas, that's forced everybody to yeah. pick up the pace and think seriously about it. Electricity prices being sky high everywhere had a huge impact. Well, so if we if we think, and certainly the UK's made a decision, whether they will or not, we'll see. But you know, UK, Germany definitely got a off natural gas. Yeah. You know, everyone's got to change their boiler. That's gonna be messy. But What's the next? Where's next? If sort of electricity and gas, if all of that's won, what's the next big battleground? Well, by the way, it's really interesting that Europe has accelerated the clean economy because when Russia invaded, it could have gone either way. There was a lot of fear that, you know, Europe was just going to reinvest in, in fossil fuels to replace Russia as a source. But it actually, it did mostly accelerate towards the clean economy because I think it just got abundantly clear that the geopolitical reasons were good enough reason to get off Russian oil and gas. I think it, it may turn out to be the, the downfall of Putin, like this, this invasion. Because if, if Europe says we're not going to buy your, we don't need your natural gas anymore, that just defunds him, right? So it's, it's geopolitical, you know, not just carbon. So yeah, I mean, there's incredibly quick progress now on the grid around the world, especially transportation. The EV world is changing so fast, much faster than people realize. Exponential growth in buying of electric vehicles charging stations, all of it. I was just going to say, what's interesting, I was talking to somebody the other day who was at the big electric vehicle show in Europe a couple of weeks ago, and he said, no cars, all vans, because the infrastructure in Europe to charge, most of Europe lives in apartment blocks. There, the, there is, there is I, I just can't see any way, unless, unless there's a fundamental change in the way in which people are building electric vehicles. Well, there's, there's a need for the the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, and that's where government comes in and investments like the IRA bill in the US, you need, you need the charging infrastructure. But every major auto company is committed to selling only EVs in like 10 or 15 years. So they have an incentive to build the infra to help 
build the infrastructure. But you're right. I mean, vans, fleets are moving really quickly. I was did a talk for DHL recently in Europe, and they have like 30,000 electric vans, you know, out of their like 100,000. It's moving pretty quickly, you know. But to answer your question about what's next, I think there's a couple big things. I think everything around food and agriculture is it's the biggest source of emissions, really, when you kind of total it all up, land use and fertilizer and everything. And so there's just a lot going on. And how do we make food with lower footprint? How do we have cattle that emits less methane by changing their feed? How do we reduce food waste? That's a huge topic. And then there's just these really tough to tackle areas of emissions like big, heavy industries, steel, cement, aluminum. So there's groups coming together from those sectors to say, okay, how do we decarbonize these? Because it's a big chunk of emissions that are really difficult. So those are the like the big next topics in you know carbon. Okay. Andrew, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, I guess so many things. It's a really interesting question. I guess, you know, I've come to realize more and more over over years that early on I started with like it was very business case, very kind of quantitative look, green is good, here's the numbers. And it just got clearer and clearer to me that the, the world of behavioral psychology and behavioral economics has taught us that people make decisions for lots of reasons, and and but they need kind of emotional buy-in, right? And so I've kind of increasingly realized that there's a heart and head discussion, right? And that it's okay to talk about morality and and doing the right thing in business and to kind of bring humanity to it. I think that that can drive people. I wish I had known a little earlier to kind of speak a I think a more nuanced language about it. The other big thing I wish I had known was how deeply embedded the the kind of story that underlines everything, the story of neoliberal economics, the story that the purpose of business is profit, the purpose of a country is GDP and and stock market, just how deeply embedded that is has made it so difficult to do my work. You know, because CEOs even if they get it will say but my shareholder because they've just put shareholders on this pedestal. Like they're all that matters. And that story, like story and narrative is everything, right? It's it, it's what drives our society. Every brand is a story. And that story is deep, deeply embedded to the point that people don't even realize it. You know, every every conversation about policy or anything is how does this affect jobs? How does this affect GDP? And instead of how does it affect well-being? How many people in the country will be better off, Right. So that's the, I wish I kind of saw that story earlier and got how powerful it is. Because that's really my work now is in a way identifying that and trying to tell a new story. Yeah, very good. And so people should go and buy Net Positive, read that or listen to that. You working on another book at the minute? Not kind of. It's Well, I mean, I'm dwelling on this story idea and maybe writing something about, yeah, there's this story that's driving us. What is it? Like actually write it down. Like what's the what's the story and what's the myth? What's the you know? And then how did this come to be and how do we break it down? And I've seen some other other work on that. I mean, there's always many books that I'm thinking about. But really, my my a lot of my work right now is continuing to push the net positive idea because it's growing. It's kind of a movement. It's selling. You know, we're launching ten more languages. You know, in the next year. But a lot of my work now is exact kind of executive education focused and. Because there's huge demand now, like all the companies are at the table, but they've realized they're not fluent in climate sustainability. And so there's just a need for classes, both online, live, hybrid. So 
I'm getting brought into that more and I'm developing classes. It's just, I'm not an academic, you know, so I'm, I've just been partnering with my old company, BCG on a, on a class on climate and sustainability. I kind of like coming at it from the business strategy side more than the academic. So that's a big part of my work right now is how do we just raise the fluency level of many, many people at once and, and get them thinking differently. Very good. And what else should people pick up and read? It's a good question. I, you know, I read a lot. I always have got a few different books going on. I mean, there's plenty in my field. I think sometimes it's good when it's a combination of like the arts, you know, a movie or fiction and, and, a, and a story like that movie, Don't Look Up, if you saw it on Netflix, I think did a lot for climate yeah, discussion. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's a book called Ministry, for the, Ministry of the Future that's by a sci-fi writer that is one of the better outlines of what's probably coming with extreme weather, what it looks like, what needs to happen in society to tackle climate. And it's told as a fiction story. That was a really interesting read. You know, I, I, there's so many books I could point to in the, in the field, but I think something that's fictiony and fun maybe is a, is a better entree point to really think about these issues. The other book I'd recommend that's totally kind of off topic is a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And have you heard of it? A colleague of mine told me this. I'm listening to it at the minute. Well, so Bill Gates did a list a year ago or something of his five favorite books of all. And this was one of them. And I'd heard of it before I played tennis. It's about tennis ostensibly, but not really. And it's like, to me, it's like a mind blowing book. It's like, it's about, in some sense, mindfulness is throughout. It's about what's your, there's a lot about purpose. There's a lot about just listening in the moment. And it uses the game of tennis as a way to say like, stop letting this, this part of your brain telling you you suck or, you know, and just, and just be, just observe what's going on with your game. And it, it just applies to so many things. And there's just a number of kind of statements in there that were like, wow, yeah. Like, why do we, why do we measure success the way we do? Cause he uses the game of like, what does it mean to be successful in tennis and who cares? And like, you know, to say, you're not judged as a person by your success, right? Or your money or your, and it just, it, there's just so much philosophy in it that I found really fascinating. It's like 50 years old, I think that the book, but it's a short, great read. We got another one. What's your favorite book of all time? I think that's changing. I used to say Catch-22, you know, the kind of absurdist World War II, because I just, I found it so funny. That's a good question. My favorite of all time. I really, I mean, fiction wise, I really love The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Came out like 15, 20 years ago. I got to reread that. But, you know, there's books in my field that are, that have just been really moving. There's a really great book called Ishmael, another short kind of philosophical book that was one of the first things I read to get into sustainability. Again, there's a lot of great business books on business and, and sustainability. This was more a philosophical thing about humans and nature and why do we think the way we do and kind of use up the world the way we do. And I just, it kind of was life-changing. I reread it again recently and it was just a great, great read. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.